Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. So Cass, today is our continuation of our conversation with Aja Barber, who joined us earlier this week to discuss her newly released book, consumed the need for collective change, colonialism, climate change, and consumerism, which all of our listeners definitely need to read. The book covers critical conversations that all of us really need to be having right now, including how our consumption of clothing impacts the very real day-to-day lives of millions of garment workers around the world. Also, how the current fashion system profits off of racial injustice and the legacy of colonialism, and how all of this ties into the fact that our planet is in distress, if not peril. And while these might be heavy issues, dress listeners, Aja's book is an energetic and friendly read. We cannot recommend it enough. And our episode today is part two of our two-part episode, and we will address what we as individuals and consumers can do to create positive change while still getting dressed. Aja, welcome back to the show. The second half of your book actually is dedicated to this entire concept of how we can get off that wheel. So you talk about a lot of what you see as solutions to these issues. What can consumers do? And also, this is a bigger question, so maybe these are two different questions, but but what does corporate responsibility look like versus corporate culpability? I mean, oh, I would say corporate responsibility is bullshit. Like that's really, (laughs) don't don't trust anything on a corporate responsibility page because here's the thing. I used to do this. Like I would hear about a fire, a factory fire where people were killed. And I would hear about the brands whose tags they found. That's always how you have to, there's so little legality that you actually just have to look for the store tags among the rubble. And I would go, what are these stores doing about this? And then I would go to their corporate responsibility page and it would always have like a stock image of like a smiling Bangladeshi woman. And then they'd be like, we built a well in this town. And it's like, oh, I guess they care. Uh, So that cost you $300. Exactly. (laughs) Oh, I guess. But at the same time, when you're still wanting to really participate in the system, you are looking for any signal that sort of tells you it's okay. It's okay. Look, they, they built a well. <laughs> They're altruistic. But I think we have to start ignoring those pages because they are generally absolute nonsense. Like a corporate responsibility page is only as good as its most marginalized worker says it is. And ain't no one saying like, oh yeah, fast fashion is great. It's allowed me all of these things. No one's saying that. Absolutely. So you use this phrase in the book that I thought was super duper interesting, which is racial capitalism, and you relate it to its proximity to cultural appropriation. Can we get into that? Like, this is fascinating. So one thing you need to realize is as far as consumer markets go, and particularly like big fashion, these are some white-owned brands. Like, you want to talk about like, 
woke washing. Like, just look at the board of directors of any of these companies. Like, it's starting to get a little better, but for a while it was like, we are celebrating feminism this month. This is our board of directors. They are all white men in suits, you know? So yeah, let's start from the fact that like a lot of these companies are like majority white owned. I think we ask sometimes for diversity and what we what we get given is just absolute BS. So like you'll get a brand that's very white owned that will embrace a part of like black or brown culture. And they always sort of do it badly. And then there are people that are like, you know, just give them points for trying. And I'm like, why am I going to give a corporation points for trying? Like, get out. But I think when it comes to racial capitalism, we have businesses within like black and brown culture that have always provided for the culture as we've been left out by like the mainstream or whatever. And so like if a big business that's exploiting garment workers decides that they want to like start supporting Black Lives Matter. I'm like, no. Why are you not paying your workers a fair wage? Why are you not paying your workers? Like, they might be brown, but I don't give a shit. Like a strike against people is a strike against people. You can't support social justice movements while not paying your workers a fair wage. Like, get out of my face with that nonsense. But sometimes we'll be like, yay, brands doing the bare minimum. And I'm like, no. But it's also the same if like modest clothing, right? It's becoming a big thing right now in fashion. Why? Because there's a huge market and a big dollar to be made. So you have designers that have always provided and always done these things. And then all of a sudden, the big brands go, oh, we can make money there. We'll start making modest clothing as well. And that brand that has always sort of done the thing really can't compete with this this onslaught of friendly competition. And then that business that might be owned by a black or brown person doesn't survive as once again, the Goliath white-owned business comes in and takes that market share. That is racial capitalism playing out. But then like cultural appropriation, at the end of the day, look at where the money goes. Like seriously, like you see this all the time with like people ripping off like indigenous designs, right? Like if I remember a few years ago, I think it was like Dior got dragged for this, but it's literally like every other month the brand does something because they cannot leave indigenous designs alone. The best way to do this would be to actually just go to the indigenous groups and say, we want to work with you and make sure that you get a cut of this. And I think that there would be plenty of indigenous designers, tribes, that sort of thing that would be like, this is you celebrating our culture because you're bringing us into the conversation and you're sharing the money. But when you do it and you do it badly and you say, "Eh, I'm just inspired by you, that's just bullshit. Like that is, you're taking from marginalized people, you're pretty much taking their creative ideas or their culture, and you're selling a lukewarm, watered down version of it that's quite frankly offensive and making sure that the money stays in your pocket. And so ultimately, if you ever want to wonder if like something is appropriated from a culture of marginalized people, look at where the money is going. Ask who they've worked with with it. Have you actually consulted Lakota people about this? Because if you have, then, you know, that's not my lane. But 
if all the money is just going in one direction, let's just call it what it is. It's garbage. Yeah. It's the same sort of maintaining the system that's always gone on. And this is why our friend Kim Jenkins just started Artist Solomon, which is a consultancy business for the fashion industry. And she's actually going to join us next season, season five of Dress. And it's quoted in my book. Yes. She's wonderful. (laughs) Yeah. So the whole second portion of your book is really dedicated to giving consumers or the readers steps and strategies that they can adopt to affect change. And there are so many wonderful suggestions, but do you have a few that you just want to kind of like throw out to our listeners? So the first thing I would say, like, and here's something that every person at every level could do. Let's stop the free t-shirts. Let's stop that. Unless it's a really good t-shirt. Like, don't get me wrong. If I had like a vintage 70s Planned Parenthood t-shirt, I would wear that. If it's got a good logo and you know that it's desirable and people want it, that's great. But like the bad logo tees, the merch that doesn't need to be made, the commemorative t-shirts for an event, a race. Or a picnic. A picnic. (laughs) A school, you know, university thing. We got to stop that. That's 25% of what's being dumped in the global South. And like that, that comes down to like some pretty harrowing things in climate emergency too. I mean, I know that recently a report came out about like the facts and figures surrounding cotton, but what people have said is that some of the facts and figures have been exaggerated. Fine. Regardless, cotton still requires water to grow. A lot of water. It, re- it requires water to grow, whether it's half the facts and figures or whatever, still a lot of water. If we already live in a world where there's water insecurity because of inequality throughout our planet, recognize that a lot of water is going to make a t-shirt that you don't want to take home with you. And you go, oh, I'll sleep in it. And then you never do. And you donate it. And then it ends up in someone's backyard. That is water that did not need to be wasted. So that's the one thing, like if you want to like, just if you're not even ready to like change your shopping habits, next time you're in a meeting for an event that's happening, people go, oh, should we make t-shirts? No. (laughs) No, we should not. That's one thing that everyone can do. I would say if you're the person where you're, you're having the come to Jesus moment, you're like, ooh, I have been buying 68 items a year. Try and have that, right? Like even if you feel... I can't afford to do better, do less, do, do less. For me, I said that, right? But I was literally blowing like probably at least $100 a month on fast fashion at one point in my life. So I would see that sustainable designer over there and go, oh, that's for a richer person than me. You know, I can't afford that. But the truth of the matter is, if I had just saved for three months, I actually could have had that dress. If I had just saved... Most of the like sustainable brands I buy from are usually between $100 to $200 for an item. I just say for two months, I could have had one item instead of five items that I didn't keep for more than a year. Yeah. And I also like personally find that a lot of my friends who are sustainable designers, those things I keep in my closet because it's not trend-based. I keep it. It's like solid classic design. Like it just fits into your wardrobe. Yes. And even if you grow out of it, because our bodies change or you grow out of it style-wise, it doesn't work for you anymore. 
often those are the items that you can resell, which means that not all of your money was thrown away. That was one of the first things I began to really grasp with fast fashion because I was pretty early into the resale market. Cause like I said, I, I grew up not having the right thing. So by the year 2000, I was like an eBay shopper. Like remember like all the trendy jeans, I would find mine on eBay. That was me. I bought Alexander McQueen jeans on eBay, like oh, around that it. same time. I love it. It was like every week people would be like, this is a new jean brand. I'd be like, right. Those are $200. That was also when I began to sort of like realize that the world overproduces everything if there's that much of this super trendy gene on eBay. So that was the first thing I noticed. I got early into buying my clothing on secondhand markets and I got early into selling my clothing on secondhand market because I kind of thought, well, I might as well be making something back so that I can buy other things, which was also part of the problem. And what I began to realize was that nobody wanted the fast fashion. Nobody... That, that sort of stuff, sometimes you couldn't pay people to take it off your hands. And so I was kind of a bit like, this is actually a bad thing for my buck. So even if you feel like I'm that person who actually just can't afford to like make changes to more sustainable brands, slow down, like set a goal for yourself for the year. I'm only going to buy 30 items of clothing this year. And they have to be good. So they have to be the best of the best. I'm not going to purchase on a whim. I'm not going to do passive buying. I'm not going to do emotional buying anymore. These are the small changes that we can make, which get us to sort of pump the brakes on these habits. And if you're really ready to jump in and say, yeah, I got I got to get away from the system, unsubscribe from the emails and unfollow on social media, because that's how they get you. They mm-hmm. used to get me with that. It's like, oh, 40% off coupon for a dress that I didn't even want. Oh my God, I need it. <laughs> it's going to go away if I don't buy it. And then the cookies, if you look at one item and then it follows you around the entire internet, that's by design as well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, and they tried to get me today. Like there was this handbag company on Instagram. I'm like, these are really cute. They're like kind of these puffy woven like handbags. And then as I do, this is my practice now, like I went to see what the materials were, right? And it just says vegan leather. I'm like, okay. Okay. uh, So that's plastic. You're not telling me anything here. (laughs) Oh, yes. Like I got to say like leather got such a like good PR with the whole vegan leather thing. So we used to call that pleather, you Mm -hmm. know? And now it's like vegan leather, which I think is, it's amazing the powers of PR. Yeah. I would say if you feel like you can't do anything at all, the one thing we most of us can do is, is just slow down. I also want to say like examining your consumption habits is good for us because one of the things I found when I was researching the book is 18 million Americans suffer from a spending addiction. So This is bigger than like, I want it. I think that there are signals in our society that lead us to these positions. And also credit card debt, skyrocketing on the rise every year. So I think investigating these things are actually like good for us and something that we should definitely just try and do. You know, it sounds uncomfortable. And I remember when I first started thinking, oh, I need to get out of the system. There was this really sad moment where I was like, 
but if I don't shop this way, who will I be? And I just think (laughs) back upon that and think how sad that moment was. Other sad moments, like living at home with my parents and my mom is someone who's never like fast fashion, always thought it was trash. And like sneaking my purchases, like (laughs) them in my car and waiting until my mom would go to bed and then sneaking out to like get them and bring them in. I just remember there was a moment where I was just like, what are you doing with your life? Like, what is going on here, girl? You need to investigate this stuff. Um, but I think a lot of this stuff probably is more common than we like to think that it is. Yeah, for sure. And so, yeah, 18 million Americans do struggle with shopping addiction, which is similarly close to the 15 million garments that arrive in Cantamount to market every week. You know, uh, there's definitely some some connections happening here. And I think it's good for all of us if we start to be like, hmm, Mm -hmm. I think I need to make some changes. Yep. And if you're the person who's like, okay, none of this actually like applies to me because I really, I am that person, like just learning how to repair your clothing and whatnot, because we're really getting away from that. That's something that we can all do. There's a lot of different moving parts of this and we need all engines fired basically. We need all green engines fired. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, uh, so as you know, because we were chatting before we started recording, I have a dog who, she's a puppy during the pandemic who who chewed a hole in my very beautiful wool rug. And just the other day I was like, do I send this out to get fixed? And then I'm like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go get some really cool vintage fabric and like patch it myself and just like make that part of the history of the object. Like, I love these things so much. I love that. I love that so much. I mean, and I think my family has always been, we've been good about this stuff. I remember I had this sweater when I was in college and it was like one of the first things that I ever bought from like J. Crew, And that was when J. Crew was like, a little the bit thing. It was like the thing and it was expensive. Like that's another thing. I think people refuse to acknowledge that the price of clothing has gone down. But like, if you look at 1995 prices, 2000 prices and run them through an inflation calculator, it's definitely gone down. So J. Crew used to be a lot more expensive. Mm-hmm. And I had bought this sweater from J. Crew that I wore like three days a week and loved it so much. And the elbows just wore out because I wore it so much. And I, I was going to like throw it away because I didn't know what to do with it. Like both elbows just torn through. And my dad took the sweater to like, (laughs) to his guy who does this for him and had them put like leather patches on the elbows. (laughs) It was so sweet. It looked so old man-like, but it was also just like the Swedish gesture as well. Right. But also too, like this cool, like actual tangible record of your relationship with your father. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember he like, didn't tell me he was going to do it. He just like snuck the sweater back to like the chair that I had left it hanging on. It was really cute. I was like, oh, that old man. Sweater. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's just, there are things like that, that we, we can get back into. I think the idea of fast fashion, it it just involves this temporary nature, this temporary state of our style. So it should always be in flux. You should always be buying new things. That's what needs to change. Right. And I would argue that a part of that whole feeling has only been lit on fire by social media, particularly Instagram, 
Oh my God. That is the thing. I get a lot of students that message me like once a week, I probably get about like 20 to 25 requests. And I always tell people, they're like, what should I be studying? Or, you know, I want to study the psychology of fast fashion. I want to, you know, I get a lot of questions and I do give out career advice when I have time. I get a lot of messages. So, and I always tell people study the link between social media and fast fashion, because we need regulation of these systems, but we can't regulate them without the information there in order to do it. We need the research so that we can write reports and say, no, actually these websites shouldn't be allowed to market to people at this age because people at this age are extremely vulnerable and it's feeding into all of these different things. So I'm, I'm like telling a fleet of students to like write your dissertation on this because we need the research. And that's what, that's another thing. Like it can't all just be individual based actions. Now I do think a bunch of us moving together as raindrops turns into a tidal wave, right? So we can definitely hit the bottom line of some of these businesses and people like me who are spending, who were, who were spending a ton of money, we do have impact and you got to recognize that. But the other part of it is that we desperately need regulation and we need more research being done about exactly how these markets move and how they prey upon people so that we can start to regulate them a little better. Because right now it's like the wild, wild west out there. Yeah, for sure. A brand can say anything and who's going to check them? No one. (laughs) Except for us. (laughs) Well, the government of Norway did go after H&M for like the conscious collection. They have like a regulatory advertising board and they they pulled H&M to the carpet and were just like, oh, we think you're saying BS. (laughs) Basically, in a nutshell. And you even talk about in the book about like, you know, these fast fashion stores that will have like a bin or like a box at the front and be like, recycle your clothes. like, And we'll give you a coupon to buy more clothing because you're addicted to the system. So we'll just make it easier to get you into store, right? And then we'll say we're doing something really good. Yeah, yeah. I think it was Lucy Siegel who said in an article in The Guardian, I believe, that it would take H&M like 12 years to recycle their output from just one selling year, basically. One like annual year of them selling goods. They produce so much stuff that it would take them 12 years to recycle it all. So like, that's how we know it's BS. Mm-hmm. The numbers don't add up. <laughs> no, they just the, don't. Math, the math ain't mathing on a lot of these <laughs> things. The math ain't mathing on 100 billion garments a year, you know? So I think being aware of these things and realizing that this system has totally been sold to us is the first step. And then the second step is, if you can, figuring out ways that you can definitely like extricate yourself and sort of lessen the damage you do. Like we all need to buy clothing at the end of the day, like until we can choose whether or not to wear clothing, we are going to be wearing clothing. And believe it or not, we love fashion. That's why we're talking about this because the industry is eating itself right now. Like I would like the industry to be amazing because I, you love fashion. I love fashion. It's not amazing. I want it to do better. And so that's why I have the platform and write about the stuff that I write about because it can't keep going at this rate. And I I was talking to Amy O'Dell this week. I was saying that it kind of feels like a car that just 
everyone knows that the car needs servicing, but the driver is just going to ride it until the wheels fall off. I think that's like the best analogy because we saw all these pledges like during the pandemic where brands were just like, we can't keep going like this. This is, you know, designers speaking out, designers I respect, like Drew's von Noten. Or quitting. Or just like flat out, like, I can't participate in this anymore. Yeah. So there was a moment where I was very hopeful that like, okay, this feels like change. And then just nothing happened. And I was just like, oh, we've not changed anything. And so everybody knows that like the car needs servicing, but the people that want the car to continue to turn bigger profits every year while changing nothing are just driving it with with a flat tire. Yeah. And bigger picture, doesn't it like culture kind of right now where the money lies feel like a huge cash grab? It's like this dying gasp of like, this is going to end. We're, we're not going to be able to live like this. And that's what I tell people. People go, oh, well, the industry is not going to change. And I'm like, oh, it is. <laughs> it will as climate emergency becomes more a part of our daily lives. Because here's the thing. When we are dealing with food shortages and crop shortages, no one's going to be able to produce the amount of fashion that the fashion industry currently needs to run in this way. Whether or not people believe it, like fossil fuel industry will eventually have to sort of not do things in the same way, which means the amount of polyester that's being produced, that's not going to happen either. But maybe we could just preempt that and, and skip some of the fire and brimstone that's headed in our direction by doing things a better way. But no, it can't go on like this forever. Scientists have said that this industry is bumping up against planetary limits pretty regularly, which means that, no, we can't live like this forever. So whether or not they want to change, things are going to change. And it would be good if we could actually just make those changes without people dying. You know, that would be that would be ideal. But no, it won't be like this forever. Something's going to change. It'll be like. We're going to be in climate emergency. We're going to have so many bigger problems. And that will change our consumption as well because nobody's going to want to watch like a TikTok video of someone like unwrapping a hundred parcels from Xi'an if we're like, there's constant fires outside of our doorstep every day. That will not be as appealing. Right. And it will change, but I think maybe we should just try and make those changes now to avoid more people being hurt and harmed to avoid more microplastics going into our ocean, to to avoid more feeling lesser than because we're not spending as much money as our neighbor on sorts of things. I think just changing our culture and and changing these systems now, we're so so bad at looking at like the long-term. We really are. We're very like, and that's, I guess, how capitalism works. It's like, get that dollar today, you know? Yeah. But actually securing a future for all of us means Maybe you can continue to have a business in the future. Well, I've recently learned about this concept of disaster capitalism. Are you familiar with this? I am. I am. This is, it's kind of like we are like, if we're not already in it, we're like at the very edge, which the whole idea is that if you keep people in like a traumatic space, right, or preoccupied with things, you can extract their dollars. It, it kind of goes back to this whole the whole thing of like colonialism. Totally. It's all interconnected. 
I think inequality is definitely a driver of like so many of these things. But, you know, you see that sometimes also play out on social media. You know, I feel like Donald Trump ran an entire shock and awe campaign where it was just like, distract them so I can do more egregious yeah. things. Look over, over here. here, not over yeah. here. Look over here. Let me, not let over me here. say something really horrible that everyone on Twitter will be horrified by while I do something horrible over here. So yeah, no, I think that's a huge, huge part of our the way our society works when in actuality, it would be better if we could come together and sit down and be like, right, so this is what needs to happen in order for us to have an industry that can actually self-sustain and, and live to see another day. I mean, that's that's really all to it is that nobody's going to make a profit on a dead planet, but it seems like nobody wants to really acknowledge those facts. For like a lot of the big brands, one of the simplest facts of all is everything's got to slow down. Like the idea of 51 seasons of clothing a year, something every time you look at a website brand new, that's got to stop. That's got to come to a screeching halt. And that's the one thing that a lot of the uber fast fashion brands refuse to acknowledge in their sustainability plans. Can't keep going at this rate. Yeah. And I am a huge fan of made to measure. I'm going to say it right now. This is the future. Whether it's human labor-based or whether it's technology-based, creating for the actual consumer instead of like overproducing this is going to be like a really core tenant of what we need to be doing. I couldn't agree more. I would argue that the vast majority of the sustainable brands that I purchase from operate on a made-to-measure model. And not just made-to-measure, but like pre-orders. Like here's our catalog. If you want to order from it, you've got until these days. And it's that slows you down inherently as a shopper. For me, I I will really scrutinize what is being offered to me and think about what's going to work best in my wardrobe. How many pieces do I have that would go with this? What will I get the most no matter where out of? I do that. It's really slowed me and gotten me being more conscious of like what I'm buying. And then you have that purchase to look forward to. And there's something exciting about the anticipation the speed at which fast fashion sort of moves you to like make a purchase and the speed as well with like the websites, like they figured out that if they can really cut the time between like you putting it in the shopping cart and you hitting purchase down to like 30 seconds, if you want it to be every second matters, because if they lose you, then you go somewhere else and realize that maybe you didn't need that purchase anyways. So that's, they've, they've science that, but with made to measure, and, and pre-orders and whatnot, you really think about, okay, what can I use in my wardrobe? I really like this brand. Do I actually need this item? I do want to support this brand. How many of these items do I have that are similar? Yada, yada. All these decision-making goes into me. And then, and then when I place the order, I think about it and I anticipate how excited I am. And yeah, something that's really nice about that. I mean, I just got my first suit. So I managed to live in the professional world for many years and not own a suit, which I think is an amazing feat. I just never wanted one. And so I finally got a suit made, but it's a, com- it's a complete Aja suit. It's like <laughs> mint green, 70s corduroy. Nice. It's a skirt and a little jacket. And the skirt is great because it has elastic in it. Because like, I, I got a bit of a gut, like I'm older and yeah, whatever. It's amazing. 
And I'm just like, this is the only type of suit I ever wanted to own. Like I think back to all the clothing that our generation bought because we were told like, this is professionalism. Like who among us has ever wanted to keep a pair of like black polyester, polyester work pants. Exactly. (laughs) Like, even if we think about like the concept of workwear and giving people a little bit more wiggle room there, we can really change the game. Like they have these sections of every store that's like professional wear. And it's always the most ill-fitting clothing ever. I have never bought anything from like any of like the professional that hasn't been like extremely high end where I haven't been like, wow, I would like to burn this garment after like two or three wears. So we could change our culture for the better to really sort of get us all out of these buying traps. But yes, I finally own a suit and it's great, but I wasn't going to do it any other way. There became a a point where I just said, I cannot buy any more of these polyester work trousers. And I just stopped. Yeah. Well, and the thing is, is like, this is not anything novel. It's actually reverting to the history of fashion itself. We're just going back to the thing that we used to do 100, 200 years ago, which is when all of your garments were actually made for you. And who doesn't want that? Like, yeah. Who doesn't want a little bit of say in their outfit or or it's actually going to fit your hips and your waist and your all of your individual parts like and it 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 looks better. <laughs> it does look better. Oh, I have a point about so you asked earlier about like intersections and stuff like this. This was just like a post I did a long time ago, but I found out that like x amount of like carbon emissions in the U.S. comes from like air conditioning, right? And I began to think about dress code and I began to think about every office I've ever worked in and how cold they all were. It's the guys in the suits. Yes, that's exactly (laughs) it. Every person with boobs I know who has worked in an office always has an office cardigan So you can throw it over your boobs so that your nips ain't showing, basically. And offices are acclimated to men in suits. So if we actually just change the culture of like dress and whatnot, we could actually maybe decrease some of those carbon footprints by not keeping offices Arctic temperatures of cold. Maybe it's just things like that. And then we also know that like, Half the planet doesn't live with like AC. So when it comes to like carbon emissions, climate change, the calls are coming from inside the house. Yep, absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us today. This was a wonderful, delightful chat. We covered some kind of heavy subject matter, but like it doesn't have to be all doom and gloom. It really doesn't. Another thing about this, right? Like I feel like we feel so unempowered. Like we look at the state of the world. We look at our politicians. It's enough to depress anyone. And so I feel like this conversation particularly is the one area where I feel very powerful. And I want you to feel empowered too. I want you to feel empowered to say, yeah, that store is not going to get me anymore because it actually feels really good. Mm -hmm. And I think that when we have those little wins, we can go on to do bigger things like push our politicians to like take climate change seriously. And so I think we start with the things that we view as sort of frivolous and silly, which a lot of people look at fashion that way. 
and show people that there's a way that you can be involved and impactful in that conversation. And once people start to realize that we do have power, that can really inspire people to go on to do bigger things as well. And so this is our part of the world that I think we have the power to change. And I hope that you'll get in the conversation and join us. Yay. (laughs) Thank you so much. This is wonderful. Thank you for having me. Aja, thank you for your wonderful book and sharing it with all of our listeners who probably cannot wait to get their hands on Consumed, the Need for Collective Change, Colonialism, Climate Change, and Consumerism. We'd also just like to say that if you enjoy this conversation this week, Dress listeners, you can also learn more about the links between the fashion system, human rights, climate change, by joining and or supporting slowfactory.org, which is an organization you've heard us talk about. We love, love, love Slow Factory. Aja details their work in the book, and actually republished a panel discussion from one of their many events, lectures, education series in the book. And it's a wonderful organization. You've heard us talk about their open education series, for instance, that highlights many of the same issues we've discussed with Aja. And I mean, they're, they have so many different facets, April. They're growing leather in labs right now. Just really, really important work that they're doing. Yeah. And Celine, we're, we're coming for you season five, just saying. Yes, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Dress listeners, that does it for us this week. May you consider where you can create change next time you get dressed. If you would like to reach out to us with episode suggestions or questions, you can find us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, where we post images for each week's episodes. And also thank you, as always, to our producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who helps to produce the show each week. We will catch you on Tuesday. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.